I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. C-13 Originals. Tell the guards to let people in as quick as you can. We've got to get started. Just let them all come in as long as they got room anyway. You know, it's a real brunette, ain't you? Don't care, not. You about ready to start? Yes, sir. I think everything's square now. You got everybody in there? We, we've got everybody. The committee will come to order. This is the voice of Strom Thurmond, the late senator from South Carolina. Yesterday, in our organized crime hearing, we focused on outlaw motorcycle gangs. We received testimony from agents of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which linked outlaw motorcycle gangs and and the La Costa Nostra, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Farms testimony, also disclosed the gang's propensity for violence, as well as their total disregard for human dignity and the rights of others. Outlaw motorcycle gangs, such as the Pagans, Hells Angels, Outlaws, and the Banditos, are involved in murder, drug distribution, prostitution, rape, theft, and extortion. We are told of the criminal activities and the lifestyles of the gang members as seen from the standpoint of law enforcement authorities. Today, we will hear from individuals who have actually been outlaw motorcycle gang members and participate in these activities. They will tell their stories and disclose some of the inner workings of the gangs. Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Butch is a federally protected witness and in order to protect his safety, no information concerning his present residence or identity is being provided. We appreciate the cooperation of the Department of Justice and the U.S. Marshal Service in making this witness available. Uh, Mr. Vita, do you have any remarks you want to make at this time about the witness? Yes, Senator, I'd briefly like to describe his background if I could for you. Uh, Butch is a 43-year-old member of the Cleveland, Ohio chapter of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Gang. He has been a member of that gang for 14 years. He was a founding member of the Bandito Motorcycle Gang in Texas in 1966. 1967, he left the Banditos and went into the Rodbenders Motorcycle Gang in Florida. From there, he went to the Reapers Motorcycle Gang in Houston, Texas, then back to the Banditos, where he eventually took charge of their Nomad chapter. He left the Banditos and rejoined the Hells Angels in late 1967. In 1968, he helped reestablish the Cleveland's Hells Angels chapter. In 1969, he became vice president of that chapter. In 1970, he was club sergeant at arms, remaining in that position until 1971, when he pled guilty to manslaughter charges. He was sentenced to a workhouse in Warrenville Heights, Ohio, until his release in 1972. From 1972 until 1981, Butch was actively involved in national runs and other membership affiliations of the Hells Angels. Butch can't explain how one becomes a member of it and the significance of colors. He can give detailed accounts of crimes committed by motorcycle clubs, 
He can testify as to the function of old ladies, prospects, and hangarounds. He can tell of territorial disputes, as well as social and business affiliations with other biker gangs and organized crime. According to Butch, the book The Godfather was used to reorganize the Hells Angels along the lines of traditional organized crime. Senator, your witness. Thank you. Now, Butch, would you uh, be sworn at this time? Just raise your hand, be sworn. The evidence you give in this sharing should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yes. What good's a man who's lost his soul? Can't take a stand when his flame's gone I'm Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. Butch. Yep. This is Barkovich. Yep. Okay, uh, let me lay it out just the way it comes, okay? Mm-hmm. Back in November of 1981, when my father, Butch Crouch, made the decision to call Bernie Butkovich of the Cleveland ATF, he put himself in an impossible position. He wanted out of the Hells Angels, and he thought rolling over and working a deal to put us all into witness protection was the safest way to accomplish that. So when he went back to Ohio and was interviewed by Butkovich and his supervisor, Steve Wells, he gave them information on various crimes committed by other members. But they told him that in order to cut a deal with the government and become a protected witness, he needed to give them something that he had direct involvement in. Okay. Give me some homicide victims that you were involved in. Not you, but... That I was involved in? I'm not saying, hey, tell me who did what. Just tell me what you know. In other words, you know about so-and-so getting their head popped. You know about a certain bombing. You see what I'm getting at? From my understanding, they had told him that he could confess to damn near anything except killing somebody, and he wouldn't get any time. So what's the first thing he does? He confesses to being involved in the murder. This is Roger Davidson, former Summit County prosecutor in Akron, Ohio, which is where the murder occurred that my father confessed to. Clarence Crouch, when he told the ATF about being involved in the murder, that was probably one of the most idiotic things that I have ever seen a defendant do, other than flat out confessing to a murder after your rights are read to you. Why he just didn't shut up at that point in time, get a lawyer at that point in time, if there was no way around discussing the murder, have some kind of deal set up. But he did not. He just started blabbing. And the ATA agents had their oh shit moment. My father had assumed that when he called Bernie Butkovich, he'd end up with little to no time. Okay, you may have to plead out to one felony. Probably an ATF type of case, okay? I have to plead out to a felony? And Butkovich thought that my father would implicate himself in some small felony and then help him dismantle the Cleveland Hells Angels. 
You mean I got to cop to a felony and do time? Yeah, that's the way it's laid out here from the strike force people. Hmm, that, that don't sound right. But when Butch confessed to the unsolved murder of a 17-year-old, it put them both behind the eight ball. The visuals of the ATF coming in and asking for mercy for a murderer is not very good. And that's what they were going to start having to ask the court for. Judge, you can't give this guy a ton of absolute time or he ain't going to help us convict some of these guys that I want to convict. That was the oh shit for him. Shortly after that's when they brought him to us to talk to him and to get him a lawyer so they could handle the state case as quickly and expeditiously as possible to get themselves out from under the bus and uh, still try to keep cooperating with them. But before he could even be used as a witness during any trials, they had to put that murder to bed. And to put that murder to bed, my father would have to agree to plead guilty to it. Now he had some leverage. Remember, during this time, my mom had taken us to Sebring, Florida to get away from him. And we were happy there. But my father wouldn't plead guilty unless we were all taken into WITSEC together. What about my old lady and kids? Chances are, if you want your lady and kids, they're going to go with you. That's a crucial detail that I'll come back to later. But here's another important detail. He was able to demand that his plea agreement and sentencing would be taken care of before he testified in any trial. Lawrence Whitney was the Akron defense attorney who handled the plea proceeding. Normally, a testifying co-defendant would enter into an agreement with the government about what the sentence would be. Then he would enter a plea of guilty. And he wouldn't be sentenced until the government was convinced that he fulfilled his bargain. Did he testify? Did he testify truthfully? And the judge could take all of those things into consideration in determining what to do with him at the time of sentencing. But this case, he pled and he was sentenced all at the same time, which was, it would be something I would want to do as a defense lawyer, but normally something that the prosecutors do not want to do. They want to make sure that he follows through. So they were convinced that he would follow through. Before knowing what kind of witness he would be or how truthful his testimony would be, my father secured his guilty plea in stone, 10 to 40 years for manslaughter. It was more than he'd expected, but he knew he'd confessed to a murder and he was ready to get on with it. Signing the deal at that point was just a formality. Here's Lawrence Whitney again. I stayed up there in the prosecutor's office waiting for him to come. I remember being in towards the end of the day it was a long day for me, so I shut the door and waited for them to come, and, and I kind of relaxed a little bit. And frankly, I put my feet up on the desk. I unbuttoned my tie, and I'm kind of with my head back. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to slow down for the day, and all of a sudden, door opens. And here come the marshals with him in tow. There had to be a couple of those guys, and him in the middle of them, and they walk in the office, and he stops. And I look up at him, and he looks down at me. He said, well, what did they do? Did they put a tie on the fucking janitor? <laughs> That's what he said. That was the first time I met the man.
At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Butch, would you uh, be sworn at this time? Just raise your hand and be sworn. The evidence you give in this sharing should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yes. As part of his plea deal, Butch Crouch had agreed to testify in trials brought by local, state, or federal agencies and to provide information in any way those agencies requested. So on Thursday, March 3rd, 1983, as part of its hearing on organized crime in America, the United States Senate Judiciary Committee asked my father to give testimony about the inner workings of the Hells Angels. Nobody had ever done anything like this before. And so, under armed guard, they placed him behind a curtain to maintain his safety and anonymity. Only his brown leather shoes could be seen beneath the curtain. This is the actual audio of the hearing with my father's real voice. Here, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa asks him some questions. As a member of this committee, I want to thank you very much for your willingness to come and testify because this is a very important hearing. I have several questions. Did the Hells Angels ever commit any acts of violence on behalf of any traditional organized crime families? Yes. Uh, Would you elaborate? Well, in 1977, they were taking contracts from the Mafia from different fractions. There was an Italian fraction that was working. There was a war going on between them and uh, Danny Green's fraction. And uh, I know that they were taking contracts, hits for the Irish fraction side of it. And uh, in 77, one of the members, a Hells Angel member, he was also an intelligence officer there, which I'll get into later. He uh, was setting a bomb on a car that belonged to one of the Italian guys, and the bomb blew up, and he was killed. Here, he's speaking about when Hells Angel Enos Cernick was killed while placing a bomb on the car of a Cleveland mob associate. And at that time, the president, we had a meeting, and uh, the president uh, was elected to go talk to the, the Italian fraction and tell them that uh, this guy was not in the club at the time that he was killed and, and try to, to keep out of it because we didn't want to get between the two fractions or whatever. How many contract killings were conducted? 
a couple that I know of. Just a couple that I know of. Uh, at least two. Of, yeah. At least two. Was that on the behalf of the mafia against the Irish? No, the other way. The other yeah, way. Yeah, the Irish against them. It's Danny Green's fraction against uh, the Italian fraction. What is the role of the intelligence officer in the Hell's Angels, and what type of intelligence information do the Hell's Angels maintain? Intelligence officer was established back in 74, 73, and it was an office to gather all the information they could on the outlaws, pagans, any club in the United States, any police officer, any newsman, anybody that the Hell's Angels had a grudge against. And they gathered it up from all the different people they know, and they collect all their addresses, types of cars, what girls they used to go with, or whatever. And they have a saying in Hell's Angels that uh, came out in the paper a long time ago, back in 71 or so, that El uh, Hell's Angel has a memory like an elephant he never forgets. And that's uh, quite a common saying now. So if they have a, if they have a grievance with somebody, it never ends. They, uh, the intelligence officer goes to different towns. He's supplied with money from the treasury for that specific reason from a TCB fund, which is taking care of business. What's the primary source of these funds? Primary source? Yes. <laughs> Drugs, burglaries, whatever they can get their hands on. Is it true that they are beginning to store intelligence information on computer tapes? Over the years, all that information that people were gathering up was always on little pieces of paper on the back of cards or whatever, and they tried to keep it all together and it just got all out of hand. And in 1980, there's a member in Cleveland who had a motorcycle shop. He had a computer in it. And so it was brought to the church one night. And by church, you mean a meeting, meeting yes, of the church. club? Yes, that's, church. That's what they call a meeting the church. The term is, is church. Church, which is every week and it's mandatory. So funds were taken out from the treasury and, and paid for uh, the computer to put all this information in a computer, which uh, centralized everything, plus what members had roll their bones and where they had rolled their bones, all the information, every bit of information. You know, when you, what's the term rolling your bones mean? Well, a new member, when he joins a club, he has six months which end to roll his bones to kill someone. Once he gets his patch, he gets his patch and then he has to roll his bones within six months. If he don't roll his bones within six months, he loses his patch. He has to kill someone. In order to become a full-fledged member, then they have to have committed a murder? They're told that after they get their patch. And they'll have to kill someone. And if they renege on that, uh, How, then they are killed. Oh, you say if the person does not commit a murder, then he is killed? Yes, because then he knows. And he knows okay. too much. Um, at this point, I think it might be a good opportunity to tell us about the initiation process and continuing on then with a total induction into the Hells Angels. All right. Uh, first, it's a hangaround. When he first comes around the club, there's a lot of mud checking. He has to fight a lot of people. A lot of people jump on him. They jump on him in twos, threes. Then uh, after a period of time, which may be three months, it may be a year, two years, we'll have a vote, and it has to be a 100% vote that he's allowed to be a hangaround. And uh, then he becomes a hangaround. He can come into the clubhouse, and he can do flunky work. Then he becomes a prospect, and he can be brought up for a prospect three times if he's, ever, if he's voted down three different times, so then they run him off. They beat him up, take his old lady, take his motorcycle, run him away. Then uh, as a prospect, he's on 24-hour call. 
there's always a watch at the clubhouse. He stands watch upstairs. He's armed with, uh, there's carbine shotguns, there's uh, twilights up there, the scopes, there's scanners, everything. They have a security room in the top of the clubhouse. And uh, he sits there at night from uh, 12 o'clock till daylight. What is, how formal or ceremonial is the initiation process? Well, there's usually a big party, a lot of drinking, fighting, just... Uh, it's toned down from years before. It used to be everybody would urinate on them, everybody would throw grease on them, things like that. And they would have to uh, do things to women and all that. Senator Grassley then asks my father about the club's treatment of women. It's a whole different set of rules for women. They're allowed in the clubhouse all the time. There's people, uh, pick girls up on the street, hitchhiking and stuff like that, bring them in, keep them around the clubhouse a couple of days. Everybody uses, abuses them, then they run them off. Some that's older, they turn out. What do you mean by turn out? Turn out, prostitution. Tell them to go down to Charlotte or whatever, work down there in the massage parlors. California, there's a lot of prostitution. Um, New York, all the old ladies up there work topless bars, sell drugs. That's about the same criteria for everybody all the way across. The money comes back to the gang member or? Yes, it comes back to, to the gang. To him as an individual? Yes, all and of it, all of it. The questioning turns from women to the Hells Angels' war with the outlaws. Many of the killings in Cleveland that my father wrote about, told the ATF about, and took part in, centered around this war. Here, he talks about how it began in 1974, the year I was born. In Florida, I went down to investigate the killing of two Hells Angels and an ex-Hells Angel back in 74. There was two members that had quit the club, and they were from the Lowell Mass Charter. Well, two members from the Lowell Mass Charter were sent down there to uh, make sure that they had their tattoos covered. And uh, while they were there, they were in a motorcycle shop, and the outlaw motorcycle gang came there on them. And uh, these two people were found uh, uh, shot in the back of the head with a shotgun, and one ex-member was found. And they were all in a, a pond some kind of rock pit that's just outside of town. And uh, the club sent me down there to investigate it, me and another member from New York City. We seen all the autopsies and all the reports and things like that, and we went and talked to the outlaws. We set up a meeting with them, and then we went and talked to the guy that owned the motorcycle shop. We talked to uh, approximately about 30 people down there. And uh, after we were down there uh, maybe 10 days, we had found out that they had done it, and they had done it in their clubhouse on a ruse that they was going to take them over there and cover their tattoos or something like that. And uh, took them out and shot them in the head. So we reported back that the outlaws had done it. So then they had a big officers meeting, and they declared all-out war on the outlaws. And uh, all the What was the, charters, the nature of these meetings? Were they formal meetings? Or just... No, they have an officers meeting every three months. All the East Coast, and there's usually a West Coast representative there. There's a East Coast and a West Coast, and Omaha is the borderline. And uh, the meeting was held in Cleveland, and uh, they decided, all right, we're going to have all-out war against uh, the outlaws. And uh, the war, there was a lot of bombings, a lot of shootings, a lot of killings. How many people were killed during that year? There's at least 15 that I know of right offhand. I could probably come up with more. 15 people killed? Yes, just outlaws. There was other people killed along at the same Angels, time. How many Hells Angels were killed? Hells Angels? 
There's five or six that I'm personally aware of. Five or six Hells Angels were killed? Yes. Now, what brought on this thing? Was it something about removing tattoos or covering the cold? All Hells Angels have uh, a tattoo. It's mandatory. Nine days after you get your patch, you must have your Hells Angel tattoo, and it's all taken from the same stuff. Nine stuff. days after you get your patch, you have to have... Nine days. Hells Angels, the Death Head, and... and the, the what? The Death Head, the skull with wings. And, uh, and the skull is all skull. that tattooed? The whole thing is tattooed. The Hells Angels, the emblem, the MC, and the bottom rocker, whatever state you're from. There's been incidences where, where people with tattoos, phony Hells Angel tattoos, have had them cut off their arms. They had the whole hat tattoo just removed with a knife. And uh, anybody you called? You mean uh, if they had a tattoo, they would just take a knife? And cut it off, and, yes. And cut enough flesh off to get rid of the tattoo? Yes. It was considered quite a trophy. There's only cuttings on the arms. I never heard of anyone getting their back cut off, although I, I did cut an outlaw. Now, did that include cutting trophies off of uh, outlaws as well as uh, other people who... Yes, I was in Memphis in 76, 77, and uh, I was in a tattoo shop getting a tattoo on my arm. A lot of outlaws walked in, and one of the outlaws had a outlaw's Memphis on his back with their center logo, and I put 180 stitches in his back with a big X through it. Because, put uh, 180 st stitches in his back? Yes. Was that reported to police? Was there anything ever done about it? They tried to catch me, but I got out of town. What size piece of flesh did you cut off of him? I didn't, cut, I didn't cut it off of him. I just put a great big X in it. Huh? I just put a great big X in it. It's been in magazines. Uh, you put a big X on him just to mark mm -hmm. it out? Yes. And uh, why did you do that? What was the purpose? I made him an X member. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get quiet. Get quiet. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Every person who gets picked up by the feds or state law enforcement agencies get told the old phrase, first in, first out. The first person that comes in here and snitches is the first one that's going to get out of jail. That's the theory of prosecutions all over the United States, and that's what every criminal knows. Journalist Bill Mushi gave an unprecedented inside view of the Witness Protection Program in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1996. And he says information is currency. I've seen cases just recently where I told my wife, that person better get his or her butt into the office and rat somebody out or they're going to go do everybody else's time. That's the way the convicts look at it. They think the ones that are in prison screwed up by not going and ratting people out early, and they all figure they're doing somebody else's time because that person ratted them out. It started in 1964 with Joe Valachi, the first mafia turncoat. More than anything, that's when prosecutors realized that snitches were the coin of the realm. 
the entire prosecution system after Valachi started leaning towards the idea of a snitch culture. Instead of doing good old-fashioned gumshoe police work, prosecutors and agents started just saying, who can we get to rat somebody out? Then we'll build a case around what the rat says. That's what caused the increase of the program, which was doubling every couple of years. And and that's a direct relationship to the idea that we became a snitch culture back in the late 60s, and it still exists to this day. Name a case that you've ever seen where there's not a snitch over the last 20 years. I can't name one, and I've been covering crime my whole life. Mushi says that over the decades, a hierarchy has formed among protected witnesses. The more valuable his information, the better the deal. You may have heard of Sammy the Bull Gravano, the notorious underboss for the Gambino crime family in New York, whose testimony helped bring down John Gotti. Well, Gravano pulled the best deal that's ever been made in the history of the WITSEC program. He had amassed millions and millions of dollars, and the government didn't seize his money. In court, he said he killed 18 people. By the time they were done cross-examining him, he admit to 23 killings, and he said, 18, 23, whatever. And he then worked a deal where he did about five years of change or less than three months of body. He had some leverage over them. It's simple as that. And he gets out, moves to Arizona, where I even knew where he was. And the people in the Whitsack prison he was in had a pull going on how long it would be before he got arrested again. And sure enough, he and his family got busted for being the largest ecstasy distributors in the United States. Now he's doing 20 years in Arizona now. But that was all of his own making. If he would have stuck with the feds, he could have lived the life of Riley. But the thing about it is there's not that many stars. The lion's share of people feel like they were ripped off. Everyone I've ever talked to felt the same way as that they were the star until their testimony was over with, and then they were the pieces of shit that they really are in the eyes of the government. Now I want to ask you a question. Uh, whether or not it's true that the Hell's Angels provide security for entertainers at rock concerts? Yes, they do. Do you know of any Hell's Angels that have turned against the rock stars? It's one incident that I'm aware of that happened uh, over a killing at a concert. In this one band, the club felt that the band didn't stand behind them. They had hired them to do security work. When you speak of a band, now what do you mean by a band? This rock band, this one specific rock band that I'm talking about. They had thrown a concert and someone was killed there. Well, they felt that this rock club should have stayed behind them and... and, uh, said that they had hired them for security around the band, around the bandstand or whatever, but they didn't, they just left. So there's always been more or less an open contract on this, this band and this person. And there's been two attempts that I know of that failed. Two attempts at what? To kill him. One- To kill the rock concert man? Yeah, one was- Well, did they ever kill him? No. I won't ask you his name in public. We may want to ask you an executive session. Unless you want to disclose his name now, if you want to disclose his name. It's Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. It's from the Altamont thing. Uh, 
one charter. He might tell us more about the attempts on his life. One attempt was made where they sent a member with a gun and a silencer to a hotel, and uh, he stalked that hotel for a long time, but they didn't show up. Then the next attempt was a few years later, somewhere around 79, somewhere around in there when they were uh, in New York City for a concert or something. They had some place near water, and I was told that they took, they were explaining to me how they did it. They had swam over and checked the place out at some house near water or something, and they was gonna put a bomb up underneath it. And they were gonna blow the whole band and everybody in the party up. And they were crossing there, and uh, they had a pontoon boat a little rubber raft thing with uh, plastic explosives in it, and they lost it in the water. The Hells Angels denied the idea of any attempt being made on Mick Jagger's life. And though it made for entertaining headlines, nothing more came of this part of my father's testimony. Uh, could you tell us um, just how you got your bones? That means how you killed somebody, doesn't it? Yes, sir. I got mine from the Polish Women's Hall, and that dates back to 71. So, and we started the Bones thing around uh, Is that the first time you killed somebody? Yes, in that hall. Go yeah. ahead. We went to the hall, we walked in the hall, and here they came. It's about 208 of them come marching in the doors. And they all came in and everybody was shoulder to shoulder and the fight got off. When the fight got off, I started punching people. And I kept hitting this one kid. I hit him once and I went to somebody else and I, out of the corner of my eyes, he didn't go down. I turned around and hit him again, and I noticed his eyes was rolling back. And I looked up over his head, and there was an arm coming down with a knife in it, and he stuck me in the chest. So uh, I pulled my knife and hit him, and I killed him. That was the first person I ever killed. And uh, I went on and got stabbed again, and I got stabbed in the back, and I woke up on the floor with my knife sticking in some guy. One Hells Angel was stabbed to death. Uh, 28 breed were stabbed, cut to pieces. I was stabbed four times. But uh, we stopped that club. Uh, there's no charters in Cleveland. There's no charters uh, in Ohio. Or there's no charters in PA or anything like that anymore. Then uh, the outlaw war came along. And the killings just kind of got out of hand. There was, uh, there was women and children killed. Women and children were killed? Yes. Well, why were they killed? They were killed along with outlaws. Accidentally or intentionally? Uh, Senator, there's some pending uh, litigation in Cleveland at this time regarding uh, the particular incident that the witness is alluding to. So uh, if we would ask uh, uh, the Senator's permission not to answer that particular question. That'd be all right. All right, uh, counsel has a few questions. Maybe Did you kill other people that, after that one murder? Yes. Yes. How many murders have you committed total? One other one. One. Two total. One well, the one in the hall was self-defense, I felt. But anyway, then there was one more. There was, uh, and they got on my case at church in 74. Now, who is they, if you would? Intelligence. They started screaming, you know, that I hadn't done anything, me and another member, that we hadn't done anything towards uh, the outlaws. And uh, they said they're just going to have to do something. And I said, all right, well, I was ready to do something. So they told me to just wait, and uh, intelligence security would set something up. So in a few days, they came by and said, uh, here's a shotgun, cut it down. And I cut down a shotgun. And, and you uh, sawed it off? 
yeah, cut down the barrel, cut down the stock. And waited for a couple more days. They said that they'd come by and pick me up. They had all the information in place. It was supposed to be an outlaw meeting. And uh, so they came by and picked me up. And uh, I, I was sitting in the front seat. One guy had a machine gun sitting in the back seat. And the other guy had a 45 that was driving. And I never really thought it would go down. We drove down there. They'd already set it up and made the runs on it, I guess, and checked it all out. And they had a car stashed down there, another car. And uh, we drove down there, and it all just took place, boom, just like that. They drove straight to it, and there was a bunch of people standing outside, and it was dark. And uh, we pulled up and stopped, and the machine gun opened up, and I started shooting. And uh, I. I shot a window out, and I shot a bike, and I shot up the driveway, and I hit somebody, which is more or less why I'm sitting here, because it turned out to be a 17-year-old kid, and uh, that was the only other killing I ever did. So you were arrested in conviction for that for that? Yes, murder. I played, yeah. Right. He's having time for that. He's having time. Yes, right. He's time for that now, are you? Yes. It was an unsolved murder till I confessed to it. What is the goal in life of the Hells Angels, and why did you join the Hells Angels? I joined because of a brotherhood. We were one family, one big family, we were all brotherhood. We would all stay together, and we would all our kids would be Hells Angels, and you know it was something that uh, that we'd all grow old and be proud of. We're singing. All Next time on Relative Unknown. What we learned about Butch Crouch was not good news as far as being a good witness. He was going to be an awful hard sell to a jury if his word was all we had to go on. My father comes face to face with his former Hells Angels brothers in the courtroom. He was coming up with statements. Ah, there was people getting killed almost every day. You know, I'm, geez, come on. For episode transcripts and story extras, visit relativeunknown.com. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown.
I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.